Well, thank you for that encouragement, Pastor Darren. Thank you for leading us in some worship, Matt. And thanks to Carrie, who's behind the scenes running sound and video for us this morning. We're going to do just that. We're going to turn our eyes to the Lord. And we're going to do that by turning in his word, his eternal word, to the book of Hebrews. Uh, This morning we're finishing off Hebrews chapter 7, and then we're going on to Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with with me, and uh, we'll look at that together. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 through 28. Jesus is the kind of high priest that we need, because he's holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has now been set apart from sinners, And he's been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once and for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by their human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath. And his son has been made a perfect high priest forever. The word of the Lord. Obsession. More than just a perfume. (laughs) Such an interesting word, obsession. Do you have an obsession? Is there something that you are obsessed about? Many of you are cooped up with family and you've been cooped up. For a while now, these are people who know you pretty well, and maybe you're getting to know you even better. I want to invite you, take a moment right now, right in your living room, wherever you're watching this, tell the other person in love something that they might be obsessed with. Go ahead, take a moment and do that. Turn to someone that you love and tell them about something that maybe you see in their lives that they're obsessed with. Might be something good, might be something bad. Go ahead, I'll give you a moment. All right, nobody's fighting? Good. Obsession. Words are funny little things, and I wanted to be careful about what word I used here. In fact, Pastor Darren and I talked about that this week, and we decided the word addiction wasn't a good word. There were too many negative connotations with that word addiction. Fixation, mania, compulsion, infatuation, preoccupation, fetish, Passion, phobia, enthusiasm, craze. There are lots of words that are similar to obsession. The Oxford Online Dictionary defines obsession as an idea or thought that continually preoccupies or intrudes on a person's mind. It's something that you fixate on, something that you keep coming back to. Do you have an obsession or maybe a few? I went to WikiHow this week. WikiHow, channeling my inner internet geek, WikiHow actually treats the word obsession as a neutral thing. You can be obsessed with things that are not good for you. You can be obsessed with things that are unhealthy, things that might even cause you harm. But you can also be obsessed with good things. You can develop healthy obsessions. My son, Matt, who you heard earlier, plays his guitar a lot, a lot. Let me say, I would say Matt is obsessed with his guitar, but as far as I'm concerned, it's better than a girlfriend anyway. So, Macy, Macy is obsessed with horses. Megan, Megan's obsessed with basketball. 
Pastor Bob is obsessed with practical jokes. Patricia is obsessed with potato chips. Dominic and Laura have been obsessed with finding a house in the middle of a pandemic. And God has blessed them. So congratulations, guys. We're obsessed about many different things. We're in the book of Hebrews in our Bibles. And I think that it's pretty safe to say that whoever wrote this book, they have an obsession. (laughs) We're about halfway through the book of Hebrews. And you've probably already noticed this writer talks about Jesus an awful lot. Like, we're seven chapters into the book, and he hasn't even talked about anything else except for Jesus. So it's probably okay to recognize that the book of Hebrews is obsessed with Jesus. Jesus is better. And this week, we're actually kind of turning a corner in the book of Hebrews, because for the last 12 weeks, we've just looked at the person of Jesus, who he is, what's he like, and we compared Jesus to all of the good things in life, and we decided, hey, Jesus is better than all of it. I mean, you fill in the blank, and Jesus is better. The book, actually, to this point, hasn't even mentioned one thing that Jesus has done doesn't even care what he actually did, just thinks that in his person, Jesus is better. But now, for the next few weeks, right before Easter, we're going to be looking a little more closely at the work of Jesus. We're going to be looking at the things that he did. It seems pretty fitting that we're hitting this part of Hebrews just as we're heading into the Easter season. Because here's one thing that you have to understand When it comes to this person, Jesus, you will never understand Jesus without understanding his obsession with the cross. You will never understand Jesus. In fact, you might totally misunderstand Jesus without the cross, okay? There are other religions that say things about Jesus. They teach that Jesus was a good teacher or a good man, maybe even a good prophet, but they're all engaged in adventures and missing the point when they don't talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. You cannot understand Jesus without taking time to consider the cross of Jesus. Warren Wearsby breaks down this section of Scripture, chapters 8 through 10 of Hebrews. He breaks it down this way. Chapter 8 talks about Jesus has established a better covenant. Chapter 9, Jesus has built a better sanctuary. And chapter 10, Jesus has become a better sacrifice. All these things that he's done that are better. A better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. Now, It's not quite that clearly delineated in the book of Hebrews, but I think that's actually a pretty good way to kind of break up these three chapters and talk about them together. A better covenant, chapter 8, a better sanctuary, chapter 9, and a better sacrifice, chapter 10. So let's just think about that word, covenant. Covenant's not really a word that we use an awful lot in everyday conversation, right? At least not you normal people, maybe some geeks and freaks do, but hey, we probably need to make sure we understand what a covenant is. And that's a complicated thing. When I went to seminary, I mean seminary, we actually read entire books on the idea of covenant. In fact, I took an entire class, Old Testament Promise and Covenant. That's all we talked about in the entire class. And so I got a few professors and some academics maybe listening to this 
who might take me to task on trying to simplify such a complex idea as covenant. But I'm going to do it anyways. Let me summarize it this way. A covenant is an unconditional, unbreakable promise. An unconditional, unbreakable promise. It's a formal agreement, solemn and sacred. It's the deepest form of commitment. It is a vow, an oath, a promise. Covenant. Now, God doesn't make covenants with us humans very often. He just doesn't. Us humans are way too fickle. (laughs) We weasel out of our agreements all the time. But one of the places that God has made a covenant, a significant covenant that God makes with humans, is the Abrahamic covenant, the, the unconditional, unbreakable promise that God gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And then there's the ritual that seals or personifies that covenant in Genesis chapter 15. Dusty preached about that a couple of weeks ago here at Bridgeway. God also makes a covenant with Noah, the Noah covenant in Genesis chapter 9. God also makes a covenant with King David in 2 Samuel 7. And of course, one of the most famous ones, God makes a covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant of law. And this becomes the core, the foundation of the Hebrew faith for thousands of years, this Mosaic covenant. Scholars disagree about how many covenants God actually makes with humans, how many are there in the Bible, but they all do agree that us humans are notoriously difficult to make covenants with because we are just such slippery, spiteful, covenant-breaking, sinful little creatures. And so God decides he's going to make one last covenant One final agreement, one ultimate promise. He predicts that he's going to do this for us in Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah chapter 31, and then he establishes it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews and the entire New Testament church and the entire church since that time is predicated on this idea that Jesus came to establish a new covenant, a new agreement, a solemn, sacred, unconditional, unbreakable vow with humanity. Jesus has established a better covenant with us, with you, and with me. And so in the time that we have left, we're just going to cruise through Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to pick out some of the ways that this covenant that we have in Jesus is better than any other covenant that preceded it, but particularly in comparison to the covenant of law that the Hebrews had been so connected to for so many thousands of years. So the first thing he says is, it's a heavenly covenant. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here's the main point, he writes. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. And there he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Now, if you're the kind of person who likes to underline things in your Bible, then go ahead and take a moment with a pen or a highlighter and and underline that word, heaven, in verse 1, and and heavenly in in verse 2. I love this part of the Bible because it's so clear. I mean, the writer just puts it out there, right? Here's the main point. 
For those of us that are slow to, 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 slow to figure things out, like this is what you need to get. I mean, so much of our Bibles can be unclear. Some of our Bibles can be hard to understand. Some of it is a little bit obtuse. And I mean, even Peter the Apostle, someone's asking him about Paul's letters, and Peter's like, I don't know. It's hard, man. It's hard. Paul's hard to understand. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. But here... It's not hard. It's not obscure. It's clear. It's simple. Here is the main point. So here's the main point. Every other covenant that has ever been made has been made here on earth. Here in the dust and the dirt. Here where things wear out. Here where there is rust and moths and thieves. Every other covenant ever. But the Jesus covenant is made in heaven. It's not made here. It has an otherworldly genesis. It's a heavenly covenant. And that's part of what makes it a better covenant than any other covenant which was ever made. So the covenant that Jesus makes with us is, first of all, a heavenly covenant. Second of all, we see that it is the substance to the shadow. Chapter 8, verse 3. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must give an offering as well. If he were here on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest since there are already priests who offer the gifts required by the law of Moses. They serve in a place of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern that I have shown you here on the mountain. Okay, so this part is cool. Like God says that the best earthly covenant he ever made, the one that he made with Moses on Mount Sinai, the covenant of law, God is saying this covenant, this promise, this agreement was only ever intended to be a temporary thing. God never planned it to be permanent. This covenant of law, this agreement with Moses, it was a shadow. It was a forerunner. It was a copy of the real thing that was coming. For my English teachers, it's foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing the truth that is coming with Jesus. That's why it's so important for Moses to follow the pattern exactly because it's a pattern of something that's coming. And over and over again in Leviticus, you see it over and over. Follow this pattern according to this pattern, according to this pattern. I want you to just take a moment and and just imagine, Pastor Darren talked about us not being in control. But just imagine for a moment that this crazy pandemic that we're in takes a turn for the worse. Imagine that the virus morphs somehow. It's already morphed once or twice. And becomes even more contagious and even more lethal. And, and just as people are starting to get really, really sick, all of a sudden the government announces a cure. 
a vaccine, a way to be healed. Imagine them coming on the internet and on the TVs and all over the airwaves and making this announcement. You can go to your hospital, your local hospital, and there you can get a temporary painkiller, something that will take the edge off of your symptoms, give you some temporary relief so that you can travel to the main cities, so that you can go to Saskatoon or Regina and we'll have the cure for you there. We can't get the cure to every little town in in Saskatchewan. We can't get the cure to Swift Current, but we can distribute these pain relievers, a morphine-like drug that will give you a little bit of relief so that you can travel to the larger city to get the vaccine that you need. Just imagine, though, that some local person is feeling the symptoms, and he goes to his local hospital, and he gets that painkiller, and he says to himself, hey, I feel better. No more pain. I'm good. And then he just goes home. And a couple of days later, when the painkillers wear off and he starts to feel symptoms again, he goes back to his local hospital and gets another painkiller there and, and goes, huh, ah, I don't feel so bad anymore. I'm, I'm cured. They think they're cured, but they're not. They have to go to Saskatoon or Regina to actually get the cure. They're just taking the painkillers. They're settling for morphine instead of getting the vaccine. They've chosen a temporary relief over a permanent cure. My friends, there is a virus right now in our world that is far more deadly than coronavirus. There's a pandemic taking place And it's the disease of sin. And all of us have it. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And if the disease of sin is not cured in our lives, it's got a 100% mortality rate. The wages of sin is death. And the only cure for the disease of sin is the forgiveness of that only comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything else that you are trying is either a placebo or a temporary pain relief. It's not a cure. Only Jesus can cure the disease of sin. So don't settle for the morphine when you can have the vaccine. And for these Hebrew Christians... That's what their old system of law was. It was a temporary thing designed to ease their symptoms until they could get to Jesus. It was morphine, not a cure. It was a shadow pointing to the substance. It was a copy of a reality that was coming. Only Jesus is the cure. So this new covenant under Jesus, established in heaven, and not on earth, and it is the substance to the shadow. It's the real deal. All other covenants are temporary, and they all point to the reality of their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Let's read on. This covenant in Jesus is built on better promises. Chapter, or verse six. Now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that's far superior to the old priesthood, for he's the one who mediates for us a better covenant with God, far better, Based on better promises. 
Now, when you think about it, every covenant has promises attached to it. If you do this, then I'll do that. If you do that, then I'll do that. And the Mosaic covenant certainly had some really great promises attached to it. If you obey the Lord, there will be blessing. If the people of Israel followed that covenant, God had promised to do a lot of really amazing things for them. And he came through over and over and over again. But here, the writer says that the new covenant under Jesus is actually based on better promises than God gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And then the crazy part is that it never actually says what those promises are. And you're sitting there going, what? Like back in the day, I had this obsession with a series of books. They were called the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. And if you know what I'm talking about, then you have my sympathy. The first book came out in 1991, and I was on board from day one. And every couple of years, another book would come out. They were big books, too, like a 1,000 pages long, okay? Large series. And then the internet blew up in the middle of the 1990s, and Robert Jordan was one of the first authors to actually interact with his readers on these internet online forums, Wheel of Time forums. And so all of us readers were uh, following these forums voraciously while waiting for him to get around to publishing a new book. He actually passed away, and someone else had to finish the series for him. But, but Robert Jordan had this really annoying habit. Like He'd go onto these online forums, and whenever someone would ask him a question about something in his books, or, or maybe someone would propose that maybe they think that the theory or the plot was going to go this direction, or, or maybe they had a theory about one of, the, one of the characters, Robert Jordan would always answer, R-A-F-O. R-A-F-O. Oh, that was his answer to everything. It was super annoying. R-A-F-O, read and find out. Like, he just wanted to sell his books to us, right? Read and find out. Now, I'm going to steal that line from him, and I'm going to apply it here. What are the better promises that the followers of Jesus get? What are they specifically, and how are they better than the promises of the old covenant, of all previous covenants? R-A-F-O, read and find out. Keep reading your Bibles. Your New Testaments are full of the promises that we have because of the covenant that Jesus has made with us. Number four, the Jesus covenant is a better covenant because it's a perfect covenant. Verse seven, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, He said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They didn't stay faithful to my covenant. And so I turned my back on them, declares the Lord. Now, I told you previously that a lot of the book of Hebrews is actually just quotations from the Old Testament. Quotation after quotation after quotation. And this entire bit here, it's straight out of the book of Jeremiah. And again, there's not a whole lot of explanation here. And then if you read on in chapter 10, he'll actually quote the exact same passage from Jeremiah all over again. And I think that the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to be super careful here. Because it's not really his place to criticize the Old Covenant. Yet he clearly wants to show that God himself found fault with the Old Covenant. According to God, the Old Covenant under Moses 
was inadequate. It needed to be replaced. It was imperfect. And this new covenant that God wants to make with humanity through Jesus Christ is a perfect covenant. It's a perfect covenant. And and finally, number five, here's one way clearly that this covenant that God has made with humans through Jesus is better. Because it's not written on stone tablets. It's not written on skin parchment. It's not even written on paper pages. This new covenant that God has made with humans through Jesus Christ, it's here. It's in our hearts. It is an internal heart covenant. Verse 10, this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to have their relatives saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will already know me. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he's made the old one, the first one, obsolete. It is now out of date and it will soon disappear. Now here's what I love about this. This new covenant that we have under Jesus, I just love the geography of it. It's just so cool because this is a covenant that has been created in heaven and so it's perfect, but it's been ratified in our hearts. It's perfect because it's heavenly, but it's relevant because it's closer to us than we can even realize. And that's why you don't actually even need to come to this building, this empty building, to be a part of church. You don't have to come here. That's why you don't have to go on any kind of holy pilgrimage to Jerusalem or a holy pilgrimage to Zaporozhye, Ukraine. Mennonite joke. This new covenant is completely unaffected by COVID-19 because it's been created in heaven and is being ratified in your hearts. It's untouchable. Jesus says to each one of us, I'm standing at the door of your heart. And I'm knocking. I want in. And so if you hear my voice and you open the door of your heart, then I'll come in. I will enter into the very inmost parts of who you are. I will take up residence there inside of you. And I will start to create something brand new. I'll take your old heart, your sinful heart, your independent, go-my-own-way heart, And I'll create a new heart within you, a heart that loves mercy and does justly and walks humbly with God. I can do that, Jesus says. I'm the only one who can do that. Will you let me? Will you allow Jesus to write a new chapter of your life on your heart? Let me close with just this one last thought. My father used to always joke with us kids, even though he was kind of serious, he used to joke about the Kempinski DNA. (laughs) He used to say, uh, there's something wrong with your genes. You come from a long line of addicts. 
Like you name the addiction and there's someone in my family that has it. And so my father would say, you need to choose your addiction. You can't choose not to be addicted, but you can choose what you're addicted to. And my father would know this. My father was an alcoholic until the very day that he gave his life to Christ. Delivered of the alcoholism overnight the moment he became a Christian. But even though he was a Christian, he struggled with his addiction to smoking till the day he died. And what kept my father going, what kept him growing, what kept him full of hope, what kept him alive was this idea for him that he had chosen a new obsession for his life. He was mad about Jesus. He wasn't a perfect man. He made a lot of mistakes along the way. But this I will say about my dad. He was absolutely obsessed with Jesus. And sometimes, you know, a person will relapse, right? I mean, when we're trying to kick a habit, sometimes we go back to it. We go back to our old passions, our sinful compulsions, our wicked obsessions. Sometimes we do that. It's part of the journey. But the only way to get rid of that unhealthy obsession permanently is to replace it with a good one. And I've lived a few years and I've seen a few things along the way and there's one thing that just keeps coming to the surface for me as I'm considering this reality, this life. It's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. As humans, we have been created to have obsessions It's in our makeup. That's how God built us with a need to worship, a need to revere, a a need to, 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 to be obsessed. We are a passionate species. And in that passion, we can latch onto something. That need to latch onto something can actually lead us to some really, really, really dark places. There's so many wrong things out there that we can latch onto. But that same obsession can lead us to the light. That that need to worship and to revere can lead us to life. It can lead us to wholeness. It can lead us to forgiveness. It can lead us to hope. It can lead us to joy. It can lead us to purpose. It can lead us to Jesus. My friend, just like the person who wrote this book, just like I'm finding in my own life, I want to encourage you, become obsessed with Jesus. Make him your passion, your first love, your north star, your firm foundation, your one thing. Just get obsessed with this Jesus. He's the kind of high priest that you need because he is holy and he is blameless. And he is unstained by sin. He's the kind of high priest that you need. King Jehoshaphat said, We do not know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, the people of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, with their wives, with their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the sons of Zechariah. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, 
and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. The choice is yours. Will you believe in this better promise, this better covenant? Will you choose to be obsessed with the priest that offered the greatest sacrifice to break us free of the greatest pandemic that our world has ever seen? He died for you and for me. And that vaccine is offered freely to us. And if you've received it, then hold on to that promise. Let that promise be the foundation that every morning you stand on with your family. That we are in his hands regardless of what happens. But if you do not know him, if you do not have that foundation, if that's not a promise you've believed in, then you need to choose now how you respond to this pandemic. Do you want the painkiller or do you want the cure? Because the Lord is offering you a better promise, a better life. The battle's not yours. You were never in control. The battle is his. Choose him. Choose him over and over. Choose him. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Lord, that even though right now I can't see my church family, that you see them. They are clearly within your line of sight, Lord. They're not hidden from you. They can't go anywhere to be hidden from you. I want to thank you, Lord, for the people who've chosen to believe in you and your promise, that they cling to that better promise. Lord, that we can place our hope on a firm foundation and we don't have to wake up in fear any longer. And Lord, for our friends and our family and those who haven't chosen you, it just scares us, Lord. Because the cure is right in front of us. The promise, the covenant, it's right in front of us. And they're believing a shadow. They're trying to find other ways to stay in control. And you're saying, no, come to me. Come to me. I will get you through this. I will be with you. The battle is not yours. The battle is God's. Lord, turn our eyes to you. May you become the obsession of our hearts. Give us peace, Lord, and guide us through this difficult time. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.